the third step on the transcendental depend origination is joy. Now you have to remember that this is dependent arising, which means one first cause has a result. So the first thing was realizing dukkha, but not just having it. Everybody has it. That's not enough. But realizing what it actually means, that it is part of existence, that it is inherent in everything, and that the world cannot alter that for us. And that understanding brings then the faith, the confidence in a path. And having gained that faith and confidence, joy arises. One brings the next. These three are the necessary preconditions for meditation. The next steps that I will talk about that come as a follow-up in the dependent arising are about meditation. But these are the three necessary preconditions. So now, joy. The joy that comes from having this confidence in a path, the joy that comes from having found something that will take one out of the worldly problems, that promises total liberation and release. That joy should be strong enough to give one an inner feeling that does not alter whether outer conditions are pleasant or not. Because we have already understood that outer conditions only concern our sense contacts. Everything that's outside of us are sense contacts. Now, unless we have understood that, we're going to waver badly back and forth whether we should keep on this spiritual path or maybe get married or maybe go to university or take a trip or have a, a biological garden and eat only biological food. There's going to be an enormous wavering because that is the precondition for knowing that this is the only thing that takes one out of dukkha, nothing else. And for that it is necessary to realize without a shadow of a doubt that everything else is a sense contact through any one of our senses. And because it is a sense contact, it has no inherent value. It comes and it goes. It doesn't mean it's bad but it has no inherent value in it. There's nothing in it that one can hang on to, that one can keep. 
The Buddha described the sense contacts as being gross, as being something that is of a gross nature. So once we realize that our sense contacts cannot satisfy us and that there's nothing outside of us that is not a sense contact and it needs to be investigated and found out whether this is so or not. Once this has happened as an understanding, then there is no question about being joyful having a spiritual path. This inner joy is an absolute necessity for successful meditation. And I'm sure that most of you have already proven that within yourself. Meditation does not work unless there is that even feeling inside of no bother, no problem no worry, no wish. In order to meditate properly, the Buddha's words start out with secluded. But that word is very often misunderstood. People think it means that you have to sit in a cave somewhere or that you have to leave behind all human contact. It doesn't mean that at all. It means secluded from sense contacts. That's all it means. Being secluded from sense contacts, we can start meditating. But in order to do that, there has to be this inner feeling of happiness, of ease, uh, uh, this understanding of contentment, in oneself that this is what we're doing is the best thing one can possibly do. If we have such joy within us, then of course, not only will we continue on this path and have the meditation work for us, but also we have this joy with us all the time. It doesn't just arise when we sit down on the pillow or just arise when we remember something about the past. It is a part and parcel of one's inner being, having found the way out of the human problems. That we haven't actually got to the end of that yet doesn't matter, but having found a way there is not a single person in the world one can say that doesn't want to be happy. That includes us. Happiness, therefore, is our goal. We want to be happy. Now here, in this spiritual path, we've been shown that there is a way. So having been shown the way is like getting a map to a destination. It's a destination that we want to go to. It's a destination that we haven't been to yet. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but it is certainly something we want to go to have, our goal. So now here's a map. Somebody has given us this map. 
Isn't that cause for joy, gratitude, devotion? It must give rise in the heart to a feeling of being blessed. Unless that feeling arises, the meditation is going to be off and on, an off and on affair. It need never be an off and on affair. Once it has been established, it can be steady. If it does become steady, it is a great jewel that we can carry around with us. Joy can arise from this cause alone, from knowing we've been given a pathway which we can follow. And we can trust that pathway because so many have already followed it to its end and have had the blessing of reaching their goal. But there are other means of arousing joy in oneself. And joy is not pleasure. Pleasure comes through the senses. And pleasure is very short-lived. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have any pleasure. We will. We will have pleasure in sense contacts until equanimity has become so strong that the pleasure is also just a pleasant feeling. But pleasure and joy are two entirely different feelings. We can help ourselves on this path by making joy arise through making good karma. And this making of good karma, quite deliberately, being there for others. When our intention is helping and supporting others, and we put our full attention on that. Obviously, our attention at that time has been removed from ourselves. No problem can arise when we do not put our attention on the one who has the problems. And being able to do something for others, whether the other person is grateful or not, has nothing to do with it. But being able to do something for others arouses joy in the heart, contentment and satisfaction, knowing that one has done one's utmost. The Buddha mentions ten paramis, ten virtues, which we need to cultivate and foster, and at the top of the list is generosity. Being there for others is generosity. Generosity of time, of attention, of love, of compassion, of being a medium for their happiness. Now when we can see, even actually see, that this has come about 
our joy will be even greater. But even when the other person's happiness is not apparent, if we know that our best intention for the other was there, it is impossible not to feel joyful. The joy that comes from knowing one has done one's best also comes from knowing that, is one, that one is keeping discipline. Discipline must always be self-discipline. It can never be imposed discipline because imposed discipline is irksome and it appears to be like a chain and one will automatically resist it and reject it or feel hampered by it. So whatever discipline we are keeping, we are imposing it upon ourselves for the simple reason that we can rejoice in the fact that we're conquering ourselves. The Buddha said, the one who conquers a thousand times a thousand armies is like nothing compared to the one who conquers him or herself. That's self-discipline, conquering oneself. Our instincts are all against it. Our instincts are constantly reaching out towards sense pleasures. It is our very first hindrance out of the five, which I will describe tomorrow. The uh, gratification of our senses is the very first and foremost reaction that we have to everything that goes on. Conquering some of that means that we can rejoice in the fact that we are a warrior <coughs> on the way to liberation. This way to liberation is not a battle because if it's a battle it becomes most unpleasant but one needs to be a warrior and a warrior is one who is courageous a warrior is one who is honest about oneself, to oneself we don't have to go around telling others to ourselves we're honest and have the courage and the honesty gives us strength, the strength to impose the self-discipline. All that puts joy into our heart, the joy of knowing that we're actually removing ourselves from that base and always full of problems ordinary human life which we have already tasted to its full and have never yet made it work to the point of full satisfaction. Knowing that we have turned ourselves away from that and turned in a different direction gives one the strength to continue. Naturally, this is not an easy path. 
there's a story about the Buddha before he became enlightened, when he was still the Bodhisattva. He had been fasting and had realized that exaggerated asceticism was not the path. That's why his path is called the middle path, the middle way. And he decided that he was going to eat normally again. And the story says that he sat under what we now know to be the Bodhi tree in what is now called Bodhgaya. And a woman came by the name of Sujata. And she had been praying to that tree to have a child because it was known in the area that there was a deva living in that tree that was uh, helpful in such matters. So she had been praying to this deva in the tree and she had had a child and was very, very happy. So she had sent out her maid to um, find out or to um, make sure that she could make an offering to that tree because she had promised that if she was going to have a baby then she would make a, an offering to this tree. So she sent out the maid to prepare all this, make a preparation under the tree. And when the maid got there, she saw the Bodhisattva sitting under the tree and she thought it was the tree deva. So she ran home to her uh, mistress, Sujata, and told her that the tree deva was sitting under the tree. So Sujata decided to hurry up and prepare <coughs> the offering. And the story says that she milked a hundred cows and she gave the milk of the hundred cows to, to drink for fifty cows. Then she milked fifty cows and gave that milk to twenty cows. Then she milked the 20 cows and gave the milk to 10 cows. And then she milked the 10 cows and gave the milk to drink to one cow. And when she milked the last cow, it was pure cream that came out. And then she cooked rice in this pure cream. And then she filled a golden bowl with this rice. And she went with this bowl of uh, golden bowl and rice to the tree. And there was what she thought was a tree deva, uh, which was actually the bodhisattva. And uh, she offered this rice and the golden bowl to him and said that he should also keep the golden bowl. Though he ate the rice, which in uh, Singhalese is called kiribat, which means milk rice, curious milk, and bat is rice, and on every um, holy or um, festive occasion, this is now offered to people and to visitors and to travelers. So he ate the rice, and then he took the golden bowl, and he said he would throw it in the river behind him, and if it would swim downstream, he would not get enlightened. If it would swim upstream against the current, 
he would become enlightened. So obviously it must have swum upstream. Although one cannot imagine that a golden bowl would swim upstream. But what it really means is this is a symbolic story which is really important to us. It means following the Dhamma all the way to enlightenment means swimming upstream. When we swim downstream with the current, it is much easier. Everybody swims downstream. All the, all the people going in that direction. But where do we end up? In the mud of the mud flats that lead into the ocean. But when we swim upstream against the current, first of all, we are alone. And secondly, we have to work much harder, but we come to the source, because the source of the river is upstream. So it is our good fortune to know about it, and we have to take into account that it is a much more difficult thing than going along with all the rest of humanity. But not only that, but swimming downstream means going along with our own instinct and impulses. That is going downstream. So whenever we have those desires, whenever we have those ideas, whenever the joy of the past has disappeared, we must remember that that is the natural, instinctive human behavior from which we are trying to sever ourselves. And as we sever ourselves from it, what we get is the renewed joy of being able to do it. So. Not only do we have the understanding of the path, we have the understanding of the beauty of it, we have the understanding of so many, many others having been able to reach their goal by swimming upstream. But we also have this feeling in us that we are extending our power, our strength, the whole way. We are not weak. We are not giving in. We are using our complete strength, everything we've got. Now, everything, everyone has different abilities. They need to be used, whatever they are. Everyone has some particular skills that they can use on this path. Some people are very good at being calm and collected. Other people are very good at analysis. Some people can remember very well. Some people can write very well. We need to use our abilities and extend them to the fullest. There are five spiritual qualities which when we use them correctly become five spiritual powers. First, they are indriyas, which are faculties. And when we use them and cultivate them, they become bala, which means power. 
and when we have them as powers they will make it possible for us to go the whole way it is simple to understand it is simple to know it's not easy to do the simplicity of the path is something that the Buddha very much approved of he wanted it to be simple because our minds are complicated and the more we complicate it the more difficult we find it but the simplicity of using those faculties which we have to make them powers also should show us that joy can be part of the everyday experience of practice and it is not this joy is not a sort of um, very strong passion it is just an inner feeling of being in the right place at the right time and doing the right thing with one's whole being that makes it joyful the five spiritual faculties are compared to a team of horses where there is a lead horse and two pairs now the lead horse can go as fast or as slow as it likes but the two pairs have to be balanced they have to be balanced because otherwise the cart will topple the lead horse is mindfulness that is the faculty which we all have if we didn't have it we'd long be run over by the first car that came along we have the faculty of it but we must make it a power to make it a power means to keep remembering to use it when walking when standing when sitting when opening a door when closing when moving this way or that way to remember naturally we'll forget but the minute the mind says oh I have forgotten to be mindful is a time when we remember again without mindfulness we will also not become aware of the joy within us about the past because mindlessly we will be looking for sensual gratification through our sense contacts mindfully we won't do that mindfully we will know that we've had so many sensual gratifications in this life alone and none of them ever did it that we will mindfully remember that it isn't necessary to look for another one but instead watch our actions watch our movements watch our feelings and our thoughts so mindfulness is that which leads us along it is the one thing that has that capacity it is a mental formation which is objective not subjective and without it life is not safe we are constantly and by in the danger 
of being drowned by emotions, of reacting unskillfully. The two pairs are the first pair I've already mentioned is the one that faith and wisdom, they go together. Faith, which is the second step on the depend origination which I'm speaking about, has to be coupled with wisdom. Faith is that which leads us to devotion, to total commitment, and wisdom helps us to know whether we are devoted and committed to that which is true. Unless we know that, our faith is ill-placed. And the next pair, the second pair, is energy and concentration. If one has too much energy, there will be no concentration because it results in restlessness. It is mental and physical restlessness, and everybody experiences it sometimes. And if there is a lot of physical energy, then the restlessness needs to be removed through physical activity. If there's a lot of mental energy, which means thinking, 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 then one needs to use that up in doing something productive with it. But the concentration in the meditation needs to be totally balanced with that energy because if there's too much concentration, then the energy will lapse and there will be a lack of attention awareness. Concentration, too much concentration, can also lead to um, drowsiness. So we need to balance constantly. And this is very typical of this path. It's a balancing act. The balancing act all the time. The balancing act of loving oneself and being there for others. The balancing act of our energy being used in the right way so that concentration can happen and keeping it going, the energy, so that the concentration is the experience but the energy makes it possible to understand the experience. Balancing between faith and wisdom means a balance between heart and mind. That which we know and that which we feel. Unless we use this path in the right way, it can be like that snake. It can bite us. Spiritual materialism, one of the best descriptions of that danger. Heart and mind need to be balanced the mind understanding what we're doing, but the heart is the one that feels. This path can only be trodden through our feelings. We can understand what it's all about if we don't feel it. It's a philosophical exercise. 
and belongs at the university. This is not a philosophical exercise. This is a feeling which changes us from the ordinary worldling, the puttajana, to a noble one, to an Aryan. But it has to be through feeling. And joy is the first feeling that's necessary in order to be on this path. If we don't enjoy it, why should we do it? Very few people would continue something that they don't enjoy. And not enjoying it would mean that we haven't seen its beauty. So we haven't opened ourselves enough to it. So it is possible for us through seeing the absolute truth of it, through our joy in our own self-discipline, in our own strength, in using our faculties to become powers and to make good karma, to have constant joy within. And this joy need never be marred by outer circumstances. As long as we are dependent on outer circumstances, we are in a dependency situation and to be dependent is against all freedom. This is a path that leads to freedom. To be dependent on outer circumstances can never help us. On the contrary, it binds us. We need to find the inner strength to be dependent on nothing except that which we can arouse in ourselves. So the first three steps on the transcendental depend origination are the preconditions for meditation. Dukkha, faith, joy. And tomorrow I will start on explaining the meditative path as the Buddha explained it in this depend origination but also in all his other discourses on meditation. Now I'll give you some time to ask some questions. The senses themselves are, of course, not a problem because we cannot live without them. But it is our mind's explanation of them which is the problem. I will tell you a story, and that will, I think, illustrate it. And if not, I'll answer it differently. There is a story of um, a married couple who had a big fight. And the woman decided that she was going to run away, she'd had enough. So she put on all her best saris, one on top of the other, and put on all her golden jewelry, 
because the women in the East keep their wealth in their golden jewelry, uh, bracelets, earrings, bangles, and so forth. And she ran away. And uh, after a little while, the husband was sorry. And uh, he decided to run after her and bring her back. And uh, he couldn't find her. He was hurrying, but he couldn't find her. And so he was hurrying along a village road, and he saw a monk walking along. And uh, he stopped the monk, and he said, Sir, uh, have you seen a very pretty woman with very long black hair in a red sari with a lot of golden jewelry coming along this road? And the monk said, I saw a set of teeth going by. It means that his viewpoint or his view, although he saw the woman, did not <coughs> explain to himself that this is a pretty woman with long black hair and a red sari and golden jewelry, because he was aware of the fact that if he did, he might get further ideas on it. So he calmed his senses down to the point where he saw the teeth going by. So it is not the senses that are any problem. We need them. We can't live without them. You know what it would mean if we were blind or if we were deaf. We would have a very difficult life. We do need them. But what is the, the problem is the ideas we make. Let's say we are a, a young man standing at the corner seeing the girls go by, and then what happens? We don't see a set of teeth going by then, do we? <laughs> I don't know, I've never been a young man, but I, in this life anyway. <laughs> but I would think that taking that view literally would lead to uh, lack of appreciation and lack of... Uh, for instance, my experience of what you call joy, you know, I, to some degree, as an experience, and having that experience uh, one's appreciation of everything is intensified, which is to say you hear the birds and see the ocean and feel the sunlight. And it's not the same as attachment, it's more a sense of rejoicing in the uh, beauty of things. Or I don't know how to express it, but it's I know what you mean. Than, yeah. than that it's uh, attaching. Yes, I, I know what you're saying. And it's, it's a quite... In fact, because mm. they're all passing and that intensifies the sense of appreciation even more. But it's certainly not the same as um, what you say. Well, the difference that is being made, and very clearly being made, is to see that we can have an inner joy which is independent of sense contacts. And when the sense contacts are there, they're, of course they're there, they cannot be helped, and there is an appreciation of beauty. Uh, not to be dependent upon that for the inner joy and not to have that as one's trigger for inner joy but it is just something that is also happening and to remember and not to forget the impermanence of the sense contact and uh, to realize that in the bird's life plenty of dukkha and uh, that we can that all the 
arising and ceasing exists in all things out there. So if we're really going towards liberation, we're going to the liberation from all sense contacts too. Because total liberation is liberation from everything. Now that doesn't mean that while we're, if we're liberated while we're in this body, that our senses stop functioning. But they do no, they are no longer the, um, the cause for happiness. Because they are too fleeting. The happiness that is, is inside. Is, that, is being, that is the joy, that is being a good Buddhist. You see it, it's transitory. It has such a fraction of it. But the joy of it, looking at it, the way it comes in a second is moved. But the beauty of it is <coughs> And that fraction, you got it within you. Mm. It's different. I, I'm, the joy is knowing the impermanence, not that it's happening. The joy comes from the inner understanding that because of the impermanence, there is nothing to hang on to, there's nothing to worry about, there's nowhere to go, nothing has to be done, it's all already done. And the, when the, the sense context brings some more understanding of that, for instance, waves can bring that easily. Waves, uh, ocean. ocean waves, yeah. yes because they are so transitory, mm -hmm. uh, then that is an, an additional understanding for that same joy. But it's not the sense contact joy. The sense contact joy is too, first of all, too fleeting, but also it, is, it has this, uh, um, the gross nature. Because you see, the eye only sees <coughs> color and shape. That's all the eye sees. The rest is mind. So the mind is constantly busy explaining the sense contact. The ear can only hear sound. The rest is all mind. See, now when, when you look at this, you know it's a clock, right? If you show this to a two-year-old, he might think it's chocolate and start biting it. Or he might think it's a building block and start throwing it around or something. He doesn't know it's a clock, right? So the eye doesn't see it, the clock. It's the mind that sees the clock. So sense contacts are just sense contacts, but they are not what we make of them. It's a mind that's busy all the time. And it's not, it is a, Especially when the meditation comes to the point where the uh, inner uh, being is um, reinforced by it, reinforced in such a way that we don't look for the sense contacts, then we realize that they are nothing but a disturbance. You know what the Buddha described sense contacts as? He said they are like a, a cow which has been skinned alive and flies are sitting on the bare flesh all the time. They are constant irritation. And that can be experienced. They are a constant irritation because the mind's constantly busy trying to figure them out. Now you see, <coughs> let's say a bird is singing, huh? The sound. There's nothing but sound. But then the mind starts giving stories about it. 
That doesn't mean that we don't see anything. It doesn't mean that we don't hear anything. It just means that we are looking for fulfillment within and not without. So the natural consequence of this point of view is to take monastic vows. Yes. <laughs> said what she's saying. <laughs> because that's from the Sikh is Guru Nanak, that's why I said that. Yes, who was you first, weren't you? Uh, well, do you want to come here or what? <laughs> Sorry, is that all right? <laughs> You're sighing, maybe I should sigh, huh? <laughs> about an hour ago, we heard the sound of a boat horn out there. A boat? Yeah, mm. the horn. With that sound of that boat horn, that question asked, uh, a man asked a question, he says, I meditate, can I meditate? And I could just can't seem to make any progress as far as staying with the breath. He says, how will I know when I'm making some progress? The answer to that question was, I think you'll be making some progress when it doesn't bother you as much that you're not able to stay with the breath. Would you agree with that? <laughs> well, you make some progress, that's true, when you don't get bothered, when you have equanimity. That's quite true. Then you have made progress. But, um, and you have made progress in your own inner self by having equanimity. But having equanimity may also make it possible for you then to stay with the breath. And then you know that you've made progress. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I want to say something that is, we are talking about the senses. If we, are, we didn't uh, utilize our senses, obviously we have touched off 
what you are doing. It is the full aliveness of the sense of hearing. Hmm? Full aliveness of the sense of the seeing. Hmm? Seeing of that much as much as hearing and then absorbing it. So senses can, all the senses can be really for the good. They are, they need to be used. There's no way we can't use them. We, we can't live without using them. We have to use them. Uh, even just crossing a street, we have to see. Um, but what we do with our senses is something entirely different. We do not just use them. Yes. Yes. And that, that misuse is, um, first of all, that it's our idea that we're getting our happiness that way. And then also that we don't realize that it's all done by the mind. The senses are only the doors, the open door. The whole thing is done by the mind. What I'm saying is only sound until the mind grasps it and then understands it or makes something of it. So the whole thing is happening in the mind, whatever the senses are bringing in. So when our mind is calm and collected, then we don't misuse the information but most of the time the mind is not calm and collected. And so then we hear something and we immediately have a judgment about it. And then the judgment may be negative. Like, oh, I have heard something different. That doesn't agree with what I've heard before. Or I don't like it this way. I want it a different way. And immediately the mind starts working and then we are again in this bind of mind uh, difficulty. Yes. So there is something which you could call pure perception, where, for instance, without the fabrication, we would hear completely, purely, could taste completely, purely, without the mental fabrication on top. Yes. The senses would actually be liberated in that sense of being completely accurate. Yes. That pure perception is, uh, is possible. And that pure perception is... Um, there was a man called Bahia in the time of the Buddha. And Bahia was a religious teacher, and he had been a religious teacher for 30 years. And he thought he was enlightened. And one night a deva came to him and said to him, Bahia, you're not enlightened. You don't even know how to get enlightened. Now that deva may have been sitting inside, not outside, whatever. Anyway, and Bahia got quite uh, perturbed and said, what, I'm not enlightened? And I don't know how, how am I gonna learn? And uh, the deva said, well, you have to go and see the Buddha. He will tell you how to get enlightened. So he immediately left the house and uh, asked around where to find the Buddha. And he came to the next morning. He arrived at the village where the Buddha was. And he went to his, the house where he was staying. And he wasn't there. He was on arms round. And the people said, don't go now to ask him to bother him. He's on arms round. He won't answer. And but Bahia was so keen to find out how to get enlightened that he didn't care. So he ran after the Buddha and he found him in the in the village. And uh, he greeted him and uh, respectfully and then said, Sir, I want to ask you a question. And the Buddha said, You've come at the wrong time, Bahia. This is not the time to ask questions. I'm on Armstrong. But Bahia would not be deterred. He's asked again and he got the same answer again. And he asked a third time. 
And then the Buddha, uh, when you ask a teacher three times, the teacher cannot refuse. This is a tradition, an Indian tradition. So the Buddha said, well, what is it? What do you want to know? And Bahia said, I want to know how to become enlightened. And the Buddha said, for you, Bahia, the seen is only the seen, the heard is only the heard, the cognized is only the cognized. Bahia thanked him and walked away. And in the afternoon, the monk, uh, the Buddha went on a walk with his monks and they found Bahia dead on the side of the road. He had been killed by a runaway calf. And the Buddha said, uh, Bahia was enlightened before he died. So from that sentence, that was enough after 30 years of uh, practice to realize what uh, enlightenment meant. And to use the seen is only the seen, the heard is only the heard, the cognized is only the cognized, means that the sense contact is nothing but the sense contact. So the seen is form and color. And you don't make a story out of it because the next step is, ah, this is a nice clock. I wonder where she got it. Mine is actually much nicer. I don't like the one she has anyway. And then goes a whole business on yeah. like that. Yeah. And the herd, is, there's a long so discussion. The pure sense contact, yeah. yes. So when Bahia heard about this pure sense, cognized is what you cognize in the mind. That is a mind contact. The, the thought. So when that is only the pure thought and there's no fabrication, then you have pure perception. And uh, so then uh, when you see something, all you see is what is actually there. You don't make something out of it. So you see, from that point of view, the monk could easily have seen her with the red dress as long as he didn't have, you know, if he didn't Yes, have, but the monk... Which would seem much more so. <laughs> you don't like it that he only saw the teeth. <laughs> For a monk, that's the proper thing to do. <laughs> well, for a monk, that's the proper thing to do. With senses calmed, intelligent, not bold. The senses calmed, it's a calmness of the senses where the eyes do not stray. And uh, another, another way the story is told, I, I, I saw a, a skeleton go by. But that's more difficult to, to think like that. Because, I mean, how can you see a skeleton? You know, you can't because it's not to be seen. So the teeth can be seen, you know. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to, to say that I saw a set of teeth going by, that's not going no, it is that he has, was using his uh, mind not to elaborate on that whole aspect. No, no, he wanted to, he only saw one aspect. This is one of the antidotes, one of the antidotes for sensual gratification, desire for sensual gratification, to see part and not the whole. You see, there are five, I will tell you about them tomorrow. There are five hindrances, and the first one is the desire for sensual gratification. They're called the pancha nivaranas. And uh, there is a desire for sensual gratification has several antidotes. And one of them is the uh, not seeing the whole, but seeing a part only, because it's very difficult to fall in love with a set of teeth. <laughs> but it's very easy. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to fall in love with it unless you saw the whole thing in the first place. Yes. 
accept so that it. So there's a judgment involved that, that would... What? There's a judgment already involved. Mm. Instead of just seeing woman without all of this stuff, to see just teeth is already a judgment on a woman and what the woman provokes and everything. It seems like it's yes, so much more complicated than just... Well, but it, there was no question of this fellow being enlightened or anything. <laughs> there was no question that he was enlightened. If he had been enlightened, he wouldn't have had any fabrication. But he was enlightened by not making any fabrication. Wouldn't it produce, though, a lot of judgment in the mind, like negative, like to see... No, equanimity, equanimity, not negativity. He's not saying the woman is ugly. He's, he's trying to produce equanimity in himself. Well, suppose it had been a very pretty woman who really was in distress and who needed some help. Would it have gotten into a mental mind and tried to see I don't know. I, I'm sorry, I don't know the monk personally. <laughs> I have no idea what she would have done. <laughs> Do you have this story of the two monks? Yes. Uh, and one yes. they picked the woman up and carried her across? Yes. It was only a, a, a story in answer to a question. That's all it was. Yeah. It certainly didn't mean that that's what you got to do all the time. <laughs> certainly. <laughs> You're quite right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, because it was only a, an, um, a, like a uh, sort of uh, an illustration of what is possible what is possible to do with one. I mean, obviously, we, none of us are doing that. I mean, obviously, we're seeing the whole person. We had actually a famous lineage holder who chained himself to his hut for 12 years as a means to an end. Yeah, well, none of us are doing that either. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, did he do that in order to get out of the worldly affairs? Yes. Well, that's not uncommon. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, yes. You're quite right. These are means, which are very drastic means, and don't necessarily mean that any one of us is doing that. But they are very useful if we get into a situation where we get into danger. Extremely useful. Very important to remember not to see the whole, but to see part. And it works for everything, not just people. I'll give another story tomorrow. It's too late now. Hmm? Were you getting up to ask him now? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim.
shall we stand up a moment to stretch our legs before we do loving kindness meditation? I can't hear. And please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Now, think of yourself as your own mother and your own child. We all have the child within us, and we also have the mother within us. And think of yourself as the mother that loves her child with all its faults, with all its difficulties, loves and protects, cares for, and with wisdom shows the right way. Look at yourself in that way. Embrace yourself with motherly love. Now think of the person nearest you in this hall as if he or she were your child and you the mother. Extend that love of a mother to that person with care and concern. <coughs> and embrace that person. with motherly love. Now extend this same love to everyone here. Imagine that everyone here are your children and you care for them you're concerned about them you wish to help you wish to help them grow embrace everyone with motherly love
Now think of your parents as if they were your children. Reverse the role. You are the mother. Love them with all their difficulties. Help them. Care for them. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you as your children. Fill them with your love, with your care and concern. And embrace them This is total love. Think of your friends as being your children so that you can fill them and surround them with the love of a mother, caring and concerned, wishing to help. Think of anyone whom you find difficult to love and think of that person as your own child. Children are also often difficult. Think of yourself as the mother of that person and see how the difficulties dissolve and become negligible.
and extend your love, your compassion to that person. Embracing him or her with your motherly love. Think of the people you meet here and there, in the shops, on the street, while traveling. And think of all of them as your children, extending the same motherly love to all of them, opening up your heart so that it may become open and accepting. so spacious that there's room for all these people. And now open up your heart even wider, as wide as possible. No barriers, no limits. And let this motherly love flow out from it to as many beings, near and far, as possible. Embracing all of them filling them with your care and concern, wishing to help, hoping for their well-being.
and put your attention back on yourself. Embrace yourself as your own mother. Accept all the childish difficulties that exist with a loving heart, with a smile. Feel yourself from top to toe with joy and contentment which arises from loving and giving. May all beings feel love in their heart. 